Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Dave. Our children invited kids on worship at this time. You may have noticed we went from a very robust Christmas Eve service to a very simple uh, first Sunday, Epiphany Sunday of the year um, to give our volunteers a break. But also it's very fitting for this morning as we think about the simplicity of our faith, the, the, the fundamentals and the basics of our faith this morning. Um, Remember, it is still Christmas, and we're still in Christmas until January 6th. At that point, you should take your Christmas lights down, or people will think you're a weirdo. Some of you quit caring about that a long time ago, I'm sure. But Yes, Epiphany Sunday on the church calendar. So the message this morning is called Epiphanies of Ever-Increasing Glory. And if you would, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. And when you find Matthew chapter 2, would you stand with me one more time for the reading of the Scripture? Matthew chapter 2, begin with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What is an epiphany? You go online, you can find uh, several versions or definitions of epiphany. Here's one of them. A moment of sudden revelation, a poignant, sudden, profound understanding of something. And in this case, we're thinking a divine epiphany. So God revealing great insight and illuminating a person's vision of himself, of his plan, and of his will. So Epiphany Sunday, we usually focus and and think about the true identity of Jesus being revealed to the Magi. In Eastern Orthodoxy, they focus on the baptism of Jesus. But again, another um, epiphany of who Jesus really is at his baptism. You remember the dove uh, comes and rests upon Jesus, the Spirit of God, seen as a dove. Who are the Magi, or or these wise men in Matthew chapter 2? Magi was the name given by the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians and others, to wise men, teachers, priests, astrologers, and people who were interpreters of dreams. So these folks were augurs, they were soothsayers, and some even sorcerers. In the, in the eyes of law-abiding Jews, these folks are thoroughly pagan. So think about how God used these men in the story of the coming Messiah. You know, as augurs and people who look to the stars for indicators of divine activity, they would have noticed a celestial event happening as they often looked to the skies, and then they tried to understand what it meant. And somehow, we're not quite sure, but it led them to Judea. Maybe they were in, in touch with and in tune with sacred texts, and they were familiar with the prophecy of a coming Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. And, and what was this star that they followed? <clears throat> There's actually, <clears throat> excuse me, several theories about what this was. Number one, it it could have been the alignment of Jupiter. Jupiter was seen in the Greco-Roman world as being identified with royalty. So Jupiter and Saturn came into alignment. Uh, Another theory is it was a comet. And then again, another, that it was a supernova, which is an exploding star. Again, this is what augurs would do. They would, they would look to the heavens for signs of divine activity. It was said that this even happened at the birth of Julius Caesar. So here we have this happening somewhere around April 17th, 6 B.C. Yeah, you know, we celebrate Christmas December 25th, but we're quite certain that's not when Jesus was born. But astronomers tend to favor that first theory that this was an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn because we know one happened around that time in April of 6 B.C. You said, six, what is it, one? Well, we realized later on we, we got the dating wrong on the calendar. But they were close. They did pretty good. So still, you think about this. They see this sign in the heavens. They follow this sign. These magi set off for the land of Judea, particularly to speak 
with King Herod in Jerusalem. Maybe you never thought of it that way. Like they just set off looking for this baby born in a stable. That's not what they were thinking originally. Uh, They went to the king of the land, King Herod, not a nice guy, as they soon will find out. And they realized that the king that was being born was no son of Herod. And Herod then acts like he's just as interested as we read in the text there in finding this new king that was born so he can go worship him too, (laughs) right? Nobody believes that. And these were wise men, and they picked up on Herod's intentions as well. Now, let me say a few words about our assumptions or misunderstandings about this story. We'll begin to make some application here. Here's a, a traditional quaint shot from the film, The Nativity Story. Anybody seen this film? It's really a good film, actually. But when it came to this scene, they really stuck with what was what was traditional, at least what we have imagined and envisioned in people's yards, you know, on Christmas time. At Christmas time, we often portray there being three wise men. We even sing about this uh, a moment ago, three kings, when all we know is that there were three gifts. There were three gifts, each having significance. Gold uh, symbolized kingship, frankincense, which was incense. It, it, it symbolized deity. Myrrh was an embalming oil, some believe symbolizing the coming death of Christ. We also have envisioned them showing up on the night of Jesus' birth, as you see in this, this shot here. But remember this. This is an unfolding celestial event. It took some time for the Magi to travel a great distance And also there's a reason why King Herod would later order that all firstborn males under the age of two be slaughtered in defense of his throne. So some time has actually passed between the birth of Jesus and when the Magi show up. So it's most likely that the epiphany of these curious yet compelled pagan astrologers took place a little while after the birth of Jesus. So according to Luke 2, the shepherds, they were at the manger. The angels appeared to them that night, and they they went and saw the baby Jesus. But the wise men were not. Instead, the epiphany of the Magi when arriving in Bethlehem may have looked something like this. (laughs) That's a new thought, isn't it? Imagine the epiphanies. They find what they believed they would find by this divine guidance. A child had been born in connection with the first appearing of this celestial event. In Matthew 2, verse 11, it says, Upon coming to, not the stable, not the inn, (laughs) to the house, where Jesus was, they bowed down and they worshiped him. As their journey, which could have taken several months, finally ended, and you see here their faith was rewarded with an epiphany. As we know, they gave their gifts and they returned to their home in the east. They don't report the Messiah's whereabouts, but rather return by a different way than they came. 
And folks, this is what happens when you have an epiphany. When you have an awakening, a divine insight, a revelation about God's will. You see, the course of your life in some way or another, it changes. You're forever impacted by the knowledge and the experience as these wise men were. And we can only imagine that they would have gone and shared this news with others in the East. You know, there's, there's so much the Gospels don't tell us, but we can imagine something like that. And so many others were in the Scriptures. It was this way. Some were saints. Some were scoundrels. But all were loved by God and are hungry for a greater understanding of His character to do His will and to see His promises fulfilled. Let's think about some of those people for just a moment. The epiphanies that they had, both men and women, Hagar in Genesis 16, you'll recall that story where Abraham knows he has a promise from God but thinks he needs to take matters into his own hands and uses the family slave for his own sexual purposes. Hagar is taken advantage of, but yet God reveals his desire to bless her even though she's been mistreated. You see, not only is God going to work with Abraham and his shortcomings, but God is going to bless this woman. And Hagar then calls upon God in her epiphany of the true God and his true character as the one who sees me. As I said, Abraham, despite mistreating his wife a couple of times, and then their concubine here, Hagar, He believes God's promise and passes the test with his only son, Isaac. You remember when he is commanded to take Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. And his epiphany is that God is not like other gods. Truly a moment Abraham would never forget. Probably begging Isaac, never tell your mother about this. (laughs) And he learns that God will make a way when there seems to be no way. I just need you to be faithful to me, to trust me, to believe in me. He also learns that God does not desire child sacrifice, which at that time was huge. Then there's Moses, despite being a murderer, he pursues God in the burning bush in his whole life changes as he accepts a calling to free Israel from bondage, the Hebrew people from the bondage of Egypt. Isaiah, he has an epiphany and he experiences God in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. That empowers him to be a great prophet. And in the New Testament, we have other epiphanies which begin with Mary as she receives a word from an angel and then Joseph the same and then to the rest of the gang, the shepherds, the wise men. Then there's the woman at the well, a a broken and discarded woman who's been married several times as being kicked around like a marital football, maybe even taken advantage of. And Jesus has a conversation alone with her at a well, reveals his true identity to her, 
A broken and discarded woman is transformed by her meeting with Jesus. What does she do? She goes and tells others of this great epiphany that she has had, and it changes others' lives. Twice the apostle Peter has a life-changing epiphany. First at Caesarea Philippi when the Holy Spirit reveals to Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus even says that this isn't something that you've come to on your own. God has revealed this to you. He's given you this, this epiphany, this illumination. And then a second time, Peter has a dream and a vision. You remember the sheet coming down with unclean animals and saying that he can eat and fellowship with Gentiles, that God is doing a new thing and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And we can't forget Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes known as Paul, a zealous but misguided Pharisee, meets the risen Lord. And we get this idea that Saul's this really bad dude, and in some sense he was, but Saul is very zealous for the Lord. Misguided, he still was sold out to God and positions himself to receive this vision, knocking him off his horse. He's blinded by the light. He has an epiphany for sure. He's blind for several days until the scales fall from his eyes. You know, we need to be clear about the purpose of these spirit-guided illuminations when we have these epiphanies. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote many years after his his great experience of the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He wrote this to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18 said, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now look at the language there, this unveiled faces. What's he talking about? You should have a little bit of a knowledge of the Old Testament here. What comes to mind? Paul is comparing the revelation of Christ to what happened to Moses on Mount Sinai. He says Moses had to cover his face to shield the people of God from seeing the glory of God. And because of that, they weren't allowed to fully understand the Lord. But in Christ, look at this. In Christ, this veil has been removed for all to see God who want to see God, for all to experience God who want to experience God in all his fullness. And so Paul says, as we gaze upon the glory of Christ and living out our faith, we can be assured that we will experience epiphanies, big and small is we're transformed in his image with ever-increasing glory. Enlightenment, illumination, epiphanies of ever-increasing glory. Isn't that great news? That God wants us to know him more and more. That we're not just living on an epiphany from 10 or 20, 30 years ago, but that God invites us continually to know him more and to be set free in this life, becoming more and more like Christ. Listen to the second part of verse 18 from a few different translations. The New Living Translation says, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. 
And then the voice translation says, so we're being transformed, metamorphed into his same image from one radiance of glory to another. Metanoia, that word we get in Greek for repentance. Metanoia, meta, metamorphed. We're being transformed. We're being changed from glory to glory. And this is a work of the Spirit. The message says, and so we're transfigured much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually become brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. So this is the reason why God gives us illuminating insights. Don't miss this. He gives us illuminating insights to take in his glory and to come into the love and the freedom of the Lord that helps us actualize our true identity in Christ. You know, and, and what fascinates me, and I was having this conversation with someone in our church about this not long ago, we were talking about the judgment. This person was asking questions about the judgment for Christians, the future judgment, right? I mean, you ever stop and think about this? And is it, why, do we, why do we work out our discipleship now? Why not just wait for Jesus to come back and for God somehow to instantaneously transform us into the image of Jesus? First off, I don't actually think it's going to happen that way. I don't, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I don't think that that's it. God has always been a God who's invited us into the process of transformation. And invites us into this process of discipleship, of participating with God and becoming like him. Very rarely is there ever anything instantaneous about our God. Think about that. Think about it. While God can do the instantaneous, he usually works more slowly in a process. Like evolutionary creation. Millions, billions of years. The story of Israel. You ever wonder why that whole story is there in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus? Why not just get right to it? Why not just jump to Jesus? Because this is the God that we worship. A God who is patient, not in a hurry. We see this with the history of the church as well. Some of us today, rightfully so, are very frustrated with the church. But what if the church is just in its infancy? You ever think about that? We think 2,000 years is a long time, but that's nothing to the Lord. And he's patient, right? Our God isn't slow. He's patient, and he's good, and he doesn't want anyone to perish. He has a plan, and he wants us to participate in it. And so with that said, we would do well not to expect great light bulb moments. Yes, we can, we can look with awe and wonder at what happened to Saul of Tarsus on the road, but let's be honest, that's not going to happen to most of us. And again, most of us aren't killing Christians either. So, so that tells me, you know, God Taylor makes epiphanies and experiences for us, for what we need. I find this encouraging as well. These things can happen, these great light bulb moments. These road to Damascus experiences, they can happen. But instead, look back over time and ask God to help you see these gradual insights, the small decisions that have made a big difference in your life, changes that have had a profound impact on the course of your life and your understanding of God's character, 
of his will and his plan. You know, we get in a hurry, don't we? Everything about our culture conditions us to be in a hurry. We don't want to wait. But the disciple has to push back on that. The disciple has to accept another way of life, another way of understanding God and the way that he works and the way that we grow in Christ. Because you see, we can't control, coax, or cajole a spiritual epiphany. (laughs) Believe me, I've tried. (laughs) Epiphanies and illuminations that bring light and love and freedom, those are God's doing. But before you lose heart, you say, you just told me there's nothing I can do to have a spiritual epiphany. Give me something, pastor. Well, here's something. We do have some say-so power. And that is the choice to stay connected to the one who can reveal God's glory to us and desires to do so in his time. What, What do I mean? You see, we must, to use Jesus' words, abide in him. Faithfully walk the path that leads to ever-increasing glory. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, verse 4 and 5. He said, remain in me, abide in me, as I also remain and abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And you see Jesus using this very agrarian uh, metaphor here. He's probably walking through the Garden of Gethsemane as he gives some of these final words to his disciples. He points out the trees. He points out, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you want to do stuff, if you want to experience more of me, well, you've got to stay connected to me. This is what Jesus is saying. He said, again, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Say nothing, nothing. How much can you do apart from Jesus? Nothing. So so what does it look like then, right, to stay connected to Jesus? What does it look like to abide in Jesus, to position our lives in such a way that we optimize the possibilities of epiphanies, our chances of more illumination, more insight, more knowledge? And I don't just mean head stuff, but heart stuff, heart change. How can we abide and remain in Jesus so that our lives can gradually change, become brighter and more beautiful, as Eugene Peterson said there in the message? Well, here are a few things we encourage you to do each year at Grantham. Before you rush past this, because you've seen it a hundred times or more, it's good to think about the fundamentals. It's good to start very simply into this new year of 2023. How do we stay connected to the source of divine life and spiritual power? You want to encounter God in a fresh way? Number one, be mindful of what we call here at Grantham the triangle of spiritual balance and health. We say the up, in, and the out. Here's a visual of the triangle that we use here at Grantham to depict that. So it's, it's staying connected to God, developing regular religious and spiritual routines and rhythms. That can look different for all of us. You've got to find what works for you. Staying connected to God, staying connected to the church, so the up and the in, you know, and not just once a month, right? We have to be together in order to develop relationships, to share burdens, to worship together, to serve together. And also there is the out, 
our relationship to the world. And then look at number two. To be in relationship with other disciples and work the spaces at Grantham. So we're going deeper here with the in. Here's the graphic that we've used for the spaces to remind you of that. And again, as I always do, I want to remind you that Jesus worked all these spaces. Jesus worked the public space. He worshiped at the synagogues regularly on the Sabbath. But he also invited other people to come closer to him in the social spaces and in the personal space. Jesus had a small group. He had disciples. And then within that disciple group, he had Peter, James, and John. He had an intimate space. He had a few people that knew him better, good enough at least to lay their head on his shoulder at the Last Supper, right? Understanding more about Christ's love. And so we're called to work all of these spaces. And, and, and in working all of these spaces, we, we position ourselves, as I said, to experience more of God, to know more of God, to have these epiphanies and these illuminations. So it's about getting the soil right. Think about that. And, and working the up and the in and the out and, and, and participating and being present and faithfully present in the spaces, we're preparing the soil for God to do something in God's time. How he does it, when he does it, that's, that's the Spirit's business. We're called to prepare the soil. And then number three, to be open to new insights from the Spirit as you gather, grow, give, and go. We said before, this is a cyclical process. Think about that. We gather regularly as a worshiping community of disciples here at Grantham. We seek to listen, learn, and to grow in our faith. And then we give our time, our talents, and our treasure to ministry and the working out of our faith. And we do all this to be sent out on mission as salt and light. Folks, these are the fundamentals These are the basics of our faith. If we want to know more of God, if we want to go deeper with God, if we want to continue to have epiphanies and illuminations and experiences that set us free to become more like Christ, this is how we position ourselves to receive those things. It really is critical that we understand our faithful participation in our church family in this way. We've we've said it this way before. The purpose of the gathered church, the reason that we're here this morning, and the reason that we gather every Sunday morning is for worship, community, discipleship. We gather together so that we might be equipped, inspired, and empowered to be the missional. That is the sent church in the world. And so it's in these regular religious routines and rhythms that we best position ourselves to encounter God. Sure, God may knock you off your horse one day, as you live out a misguided understanding of your faith. He's done that more than once. Or maybe as you're consumed with self, God may have to do something jarring like that. But normally, normally, the Spirit of God needs more to work with than that. What are you giving God to work with? You know, I, I, I see this a lot, and my, my heart as a pastor really does go out to people who are frustrated in their walk. Um, they're, they're sort of confined and trapped within old, unhealthy portraits of God, unable to heal and, 
and forgive and move on and all kinds of unhealth. When I look closely at their routines and rhythms, there's not consistency. There's not intentionality. And so I, I want to look back as like a loving parent would to a child and say, what do you expect? We have to position ourselves for these things. We don't make them happen, but again, we prepare the soil for breakthroughs. We prepare the soil for growth. We position ourselves for freedom, to hear his voice, to experience his presence, and to know his will for our lives. Before I give us some questions for reflection and response, I I just share briefly my my own experience here. I've, I've experienced several epiphanies and spiritual illuminations in the past 25 years uh, or more of following Jesus. Sometimes that came through listening to sermons and reading books. It came through relationships with people. It it happened through events, sometimes not pleasant events. (laughs) You know, I've noticed in my own life, about every seven years, there seems to be some sort of major upheaval in my life. It's not all bad, but it certainly isn't all pleasant. It's challenging. It's, it's trying. I can go back maybe even to 1992 roundabouts when I gave my heart to the Lord, and then 1999 when I, after I graduated high school and eventually stopped running away from God and repented of my sins— 2006, I left the tradition that I grew up in and went into about a six, seven-year wilderness period of, of trying to heal and trying to figure out what is God like and what does God want from the church after coming out of fundamentalist faith. And then in 2013, the Lord moved us from Texas to Virginia, and then shortly after that, here to Pennsylvania with you. And then in 2020, Do I need to go into that? (laughs) Now, I'm looking ahead at 2027 and trying to get myself ready for that, but I I don't know. That just seems to be the pattern in my life. Is there a pattern in your life? It may not be a set number of years, but you ever notice how God works with us in different seasons? I think we can count on this, that it will often come with some struggle and with trial, but also new experiences of God's love and grace. And at least for me, it has been a clarity that came regarding God's calling on my life. And I want that for you, Grantham Church. There's at least one thing that all of these epiphanies and seasons of life have had in common— as I thought back over, over this message and about these epiphanies and the seasons of life I've just described for you, like what did they have in common? I think it was this. Though n- not perfect, never have been, never will be, always stumbling forward in Christ, one thing by the grace of God I can see and I encourage you to do the same, was I intentionally pursued God. I did not quit, and I stayed open to growth. Brothers and sisters, that is what we must do 
to continue to grow in Christ-likeness. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do in 2023. Be intentional in the way you pursue God and stay open to the Lord's leading in your life. Amen. Finally, here are some questions for reflection response. And as we put these questions on the screen, I just ask you to be in conversation with the Lord about what, you, what you're asking yourself here. Number one, can you recall some epiphany moments in your faith journey? Maybe some things already come to your mind as I've been talking. What are those? How did God work in your life? Was there some struggle and trial along with grace and illumination? Why were these moments so meaningful to you? How do they still shape you and inform your, your discipleship today? And number two, where do you sense the Spirit is leading you now? How is the Lord inviting you to receive more of Christ this year? What might you need to do to position yourself to receive more of the Lord, to prepare the soil, to give God more to work with? And then number three, we often say here at Grantham, what is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? What will you do in response to God's invitation? I'm not asking you to make any New Year's resolutions. I stopped doing that a long time ago. <laughs> Got disappointed the f- first couple weeks into those, right? But just to set the trajectory, to, to aim your heart and just move in that direction. Would you do that? How does God want you to do that? What does that look like for you this year? Would you pray with me? Father, we're reminded this morning that regardless of who we are or where we're traveling from, what our intentions are, you find us like you found these magi. You, you bless us when we've been wronged like Hagar and you give us new insights into your character. Lord, you bless our faith despite the mess we've made of things. We're reminded as we look back, Lord, of these biblical characters that as zealous as we might be, we can also be misguided and you will find us there too. So, Lord, we just take comfort in that, that you're always pursuing us, always inviting us to abide in you. Holy Spirit, would you give us clarity this morning of what that looks like for us this year? And, Lord, we are relying upon your power to be faithful, to be intentional, and to be obedient. And upon your grace to do what you've called us to do. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, for your promises that are yes in Christ. And go with us now through this year as we seek to follow you. 
and bring glory to your name. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.